When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I always think about what is that downside and most of what I've realized is that a lot of the things that we fear in life or a lot of the things that we worry about um, in terms of downside oftentimes isn't that big of a deal and I think that's probably the biggest attitude for me is it's not that I'm willing to take less risks it's more I think I've lived my life that way of not kind of fretting over small things and being able to to quantify exactly what those risks are. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of My Life in Four Trades. Joining me today is Jeff Dorman, Chief Investment Officer at ARCA. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to My Life in Four Trades. Thanks for having me. So before we jump into your trades, it's our tradition to just have us tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, where'd you grow up, and what were the early years like for you? Uh, sure. Yeah. So Jeff Dorman, Chief Investment Officer and co-founder of ARCA, which is a uh, full-service asset management firm uh, dedicated exclusively to digital assets and blockchain. Uh, obviously, didn't grow up or start my career in blockchain since it didn't exist at the time, but uh you know, I grew up in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, still a tortured Cleveland sports fan, um, and went to school at Washington University in St. Louis, uh, and from there started my career on Wall Street. Um, I worked uh, as an investment banker at Lehman Brothers, uh, and then I went on to be a corporate bond trader at Merrill Lynch, uh, and then after the financial crisis, went to the buy side. I worked for Citadel and a couple smaller hedge funds, um, and then after that, I uh, got into fintech uh, in the you know 2014 range, and and from fintech, uh, kind of opened my eyes a little bit. We'll we'll get into the to that as one yeah. of my trades here in a minute, but you know, opened my eyes to what else was out there besides this just myopic kind of uh, closed Wall Street world, and 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 from fintech to to blockchain, and ultimately starting Arca. Yeah, it's and we will dive into that journey and invest. You know that world of investment banking and and hedge funds, and you kind of made your journey through all of the biggest ones during the biggest time. It's a really intense experience. So um, it, it is sort of interesting that it kind of becomes a closed wall. I think. Were you always a were you always a numbers guy, a math guy? Uh, I was a math guy. Um, but, uh, I actually was a biology major at first in, uh, in school, uh, until I actually was really into, uh, DNA and genetics, um, until I found out that genetic counselors make like $20,000 a year and then I had to switch. But, um, was, you know, I, I, I took a lot of finance and economic courses, but also was into language, was into, um, you know, like I said, sciences. Um, but, but ultimately math always came easy for me. It was always kind of what, what, what drove, um, everything that I did, even, you know, as a baseball player through college was always into stats and, and, you know, it was kind of an Excel junkie. 
Um, so I think it was a probably a natural move to get into finance, although I maybe didn't didn't know it until uh, uh, you know got towards the end of my college years. Yeah, how how did you get introduced to it? I mean, was was sort of investing a topic that came up around your dinner table, or was it through trying to figure out a job that you were going to be able to make money at? You know, is that is that where the intro came? Yeah, a little bit of a, a self-made finance guy in the sense that neither of my parents were financial professionals. Neither of them really enjoyed or even cared about investing. Um, I, I think actually the first stock I ever bought was Enron. So not, not exactly, uh, <laughs> I was a freshman in college and the financial advisor told me Enron was a good stock. So I was like, well, I, you know, I've been taking all these finance courses. I should probably invest in a stock and learn how it works. And, and that was a good first choice. That told you a lot about Enron and about your, about the profession of financial advisors too. We learned a lot from that whole episode, didn't we? I did. And also learned a lot about don't just listen to people, actually do your own work. Um, but, Honestly, it was, um, I think I learned about investment banking sometime in college. Um, actually, I think my mom at the time was a headhunter and she had just been placing a fair amount of investment bankers. So she taught, she told me about what it was. And I remember I applied to a ton of internships, um, between my junior and senior year and got none of them. And I couldn't understand why. I had a good GPA, was, you know, an athlete in college, um, had a, pretty much the resume that I would have expected to have gotten at least some internships. And, and got none. And I think it was largely because I was a biology major. Um, so all I did was I talked, I, I remember all I did was switch my major from biology to finance and economics and nothing else changed. Um, and, and even my course load didn't change because I was taking all the same courses anyway. I just changed it. And then all of a sudden when I applied for full-time jobs, I got, you know, seven or eight offers, you know, in New York and Chicago. So little, uh, you know, a little weird, right? Sometimes those little life, uh, quirks are, are sort of out of your control. And, and obviously there's, you know, back then I know people now would look at something like Lehman Brothers or Merrill Lynch and say, well, that's a terrible company. But back 20 years ago, that was the cream of the crop. I mean, to get a job at Lehman or, or Merrill or Bear Stearns, I mean, that was a big deal and it was competitive. So obviously they have to do the screening process somehow. And, and one of those screening processes was clearly just your focus and your major. Um, so sort of a, uh, 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 interesting that just a, a minute little switch like that just on a resume made a big difference to me. But but ultimately, when I got to New York, that kind of shaped where I was going for the next 20 years plus. Yeah. Before we jump into your first trade, what was your um, initial impression when you started working at the banks? Was Lehman the first stop, the first job? What was your sort of, you know, impression of, of it all? Well, even before, actually, I'll take a step back. Even before I got there, um, Washington University in St. Louis did, you know, that, that was a very good school, but it wasn't your Ivy League where they had all of New York, you know, knocking down your door. So at WashU, uh, I was actually one of the, uh, 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 leaders of a group we called Wall Street Week, where we just put 30 or 40 kids together who wanted to get to Wall Street. And we basically put resume books together and planned a trip to New York. Um, so I kind of learned about it before even getting there, just talking to some of the uh, MBA students who had already done two or three years in investment banking or trading and kind of understood the culture. And in fact, I remember um, I remember sending resumes and cover letters, actual physical mailed resumes and cover <laughs> letters, um, you know, in the in the in the late uh, uh, 90s, early 2000s to these banks. And oftentimes the response would be, well, you know, you're in St. Louis. So if you ever get to New York, let us know. And, and I remember I, ha I had to physically go to New York, call all the same companies again and be like, hey, you know, it's Jeff Dorman again. I'm looking for a job. And they say, well, let me know when you're in New York. I'm like, well, I'm actually in your lobby. Can I come up? Um, two of the job offers I got were just from being kind of persistent and being a little bit overly aggressive, um, you know, physically standing in their lobby, making a phone call, trying to get in for an interview. 
Um, and I think that carried with me once I got there of, okay, this is, you know, this is the world you're now in. It is about yeah. kind of being an alpha, being aggressive, you know, not just sitting back and, and, um, you know, going from investment banking to then trading and, and, and managing, you know, outside client assets through hedge funds. I think it's all sort of the same thing of just, you know, being willing to trust yourself and put yourself out there and, and, and not be passive. Um, so, you know, my, I guess my, my interpretation or my, uh, experience in New York was kind of a buildup of once I got there, it was everything that I thought. I mean, it was fast paced. It was, you know, uh, uh, all the stories you might have read in, in liar's poker or monkey business. I mean, all that stuff was real. Um, you know, it was, it was a fun kind of collegiate environment of young people trying to make a name for themselves, but also very intense, very serious and, 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 you know, really a good way to start your career. This brings us perfectly into your first trade, and that's one of your best, and that's quitting your job at Lehman to follow your now wife to D.C. So t tell us about, set the scene for us. Where were you living? How long had the two of you been together? Like, wh where were you at this point in your life? Yeah, so I met my now wife in college. Um, you know, we, uh, uh, you know, had, had been dating pretty much mostly through college and, you know, took a lot of the same courses. She actually went on to become a doctor, as you just mentioned. So a lot of this, a lot of the biology courses and chemistry courses, we were all in there together. Um, but when we both graduated, she moved up to Boston, um, and was doing some research up there before going to medical school. And I went to New York to work for Lehman. Um, and then a few years later, when she got into medical school, the best one she got into was, was George Washington down in DC. Um, and that was a, you know, we went from maybe just a year or two of being apart to now all of a sudden it's like, okay, this is going to be four years of being apart if, if I stay in New York and, and, and you go there. And I loved my job at Lehman. I loved the people. I liked what we were doing. It was fun. Um, you know, being in New York was great. And I had a big choice to make, you know, either stay separated for four years and, and, uh, or, or make the move. Um, and I ultimately, uh, decided to move to DC. I worked for a small firm for a couple of years called Friedman Billings Ramsey before moving back to New York, um, later. And I remember it was, it was pretty funny because, uh, I was, I was good at my job at Lehman. I was the number one ranked investment banking analyst two straight years. I loved it. Like I said, it was a, it was a fun job. It was cool being there. It was hard to, to give that up, um, and, and move. And I remember when I told people at Lehman, uh, it was a typical kind of uh, a response that you expect from most people. They're like, what are you doing? You're throwing your career away. Why would you go to this small firm called FBR DC when you could be at Lehman forever? Um, you know, everyone said that, you know, this is ridiculous. Why, why would you chase a girl over your career? Um, and actually one person I remember said, uh, is she rich? <laughs> and I said, no, not at all. <laughs> um, he said, well, that's too bad because you can make a lot more money on your wedding day than you can in your career. Um, and this was really funny at the time to me just because this was a, you know, it, at the time I'm 24 years old and I'm putting these managing directors at Lehman on a pedestal because they're all worth, you know, millions of dollars. And I'm thinking, oh my God, how cool to be. And this guy's saying, you know, don't worry about your job. Just go marry rich, uh, which I thought was pretty funny. And that's not what I did. Um, <laughs> uh, I actually picked up quite a bit of medical school debt when I got married. So it was not a good trade from that standpoint. Um, but. I you know, ultimately decided to go down there and, you know, not only was that a great trade in retrospect because um, of Lehman ultimately going under, like who knows what would have happened to my career if I had stayed at Lehman for eight years right before, you know, they went bankrupt. But um, also just, um, you know, my wife now, we've been married 17 years, we've got two children, we got a nice life, but, but also just the willingness to understand that there's more to life than just your career. Like I said, like, you know, I was young. I really loved it there. I was making good money. 
Um, you know, I was good at it and, and being willing to kind of put some of that aside for personal gain, um, was a tough decision. Um, it worked out really well and, and it would never have done anything differently. Um, but you know, certainly now it looks like the right thing to have done, but back, you know, 18, 19 years ago, whenever it was, it was a tough decision. And I think what the person said to you is so interesting. Like, why are you chasing a girl and, and throwing away your career? Because, you know, it might not seem like that long ago, but that I mean, in some ways, maybe it still is, but that was really the prevailing wisdom. Like a, a, a women have made, had to make that choice many, many times, like, you know, traditionally, but it's not very often. It's not asked of men to make that choice the other way around. Yeah, for sure. And also, I mean, you know, I only lived in DC for about two and a half years before we ultimately moved back to New York, but that was a great experience too. I mean, I'd never, you know, I've been to DC just for like a school trip here and there, uh, you know, to see a museum, but, um, to leave New York and go live in DC for a couple of years before going back to New York, um, that was great as well. I and mean, I think DC is one of the cool cities in the world. Um, and to be able to live there, um, and, and, you know, even though Friedman, Billings, Ramsey, not a very well-known, um, firm, certainly, uh, uh, not a, not a bulge bracket like, like Lehman or any of the big ones that I, that I left. Um, you know, another place where I met, you know, a good 10 people that I still, you know, talk to all the time in my financial network came from, you know, meeting them at FBR. Um, so, you know, you never just, you just never really know what those, uh, twists and turns in your life will, will end up doing for you, but, but certainly a good experience all around. It's so interesting that you are able to sort of unravel the, the many different reasons. It was a good decision because, you know, aside from your personal fulfillment, you, you, in a way, the way you describe it, you took a bet on yourself, didn't you? You know, you didn't define your career just related to the company. It was really you saying, I'm going to be able to do this, you know, and and make it work no matter where I am. Even though you're still young in your career, that's kind of extraordinary. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. But but also, I think too, it, it goes when I decided after you know she did her first three years of medical school, and then she was she did her fourth year in New York. Um, uh, you know, when I tried to move back to New York, I realized how tough it is once you get off that track, right? It's one thing when you're on the track and then you get off the track and trying to get back in. And it, it almost was back to my college days when I had to like knock down doors to get back in. I mean, that's kind of how I got the Merrill Lynch job going back to New York was basically knocking down doors saying, you know, I, I left Lehman. I came down here for personal reasons. I learned another, you know, aspect of finance being down here because Friedman Billings Ramsey at the time was doing, you know, uh, uh, very different types of financial transactions than a place like Lehman was and, and ultimately use both of those experiences to kind of get back into the, 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 the bulge bracket and work at Merrill and, you know, uh, build that corporate bond trading uh, acumen and ultimately into investing in debt and equities for the, for the rest of my career. So your second trade is one of your worst trades. And that's going back to work in 2011 after getting let go by Citadel and having a one-year non-compete and passing up the chance to travel. I put these in the order that seemed to make sense to me because you sent us over four. Um, so you didn't travel. You didn't enjoy your life. I think everybody right now coming out of COVID really understands that. So what's happening when this all went down? So the backdrop here is, um, you know, like I said, I started at Lehman, prestigious place, kind of took a little bit of that away when I went down to D.C. to work for FBR, you know, fought like hell to get back to Wall Street when I got the Merrill job and then went from Merrill to Citadel. And it's like, OK, I got it back on track. I, you know, I'm back in these big firms, learning a ton, making good money. Um, and then the group that I was in at Citadel um, basically unwound and shut down. Um, and Citadel was a very 
fun place to work. It was, they were very big into, uh, you know, the people there and, 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 and how you built a group. But then when you left, it was like ironclad lockdown. You can't work for another year. I mean, you know, I, I worked, I, I talked to employment lawyers. They're like, there's no way you're beating Citadel. If they have a one year non-compete, yeah. it's a one year non-compete. Like, you, you know, you can't fight it. So I was like, well, it's, okay, well, that's upsetting. So I basically had a choice. This is at the end of 2011. Um, or sorry, the end of 2010 rather. Um, and I basically had a choice of not working for the entire year of 2011 while still getting paid by Citadel or going back to work. And the backdrop there was, again, I just spent the last 10 years kind of busting my butt to get into these big places and to work and make money. And the idea of just sort of taking a year off, especially after the financial crisis, when you, who knows what the markets are going to look like when you decide to come back to work, was a little daunting, um, but at the same time, I had just gone straight from college to work. Never had really anything more than a one-week vacation. Certainly not, you know, any extended period of time off. And I was like, oh, you know, the idea of maybe not working for a year and traveling and doing something sounded pretty appealing. Um, but there was a, there was an interesting amount of pressure, um, you know, partly actually coming from my wife and my family, who you know, all my wife is, you know, had just. Uh, finished medical school at this time. So she's working in her residency uh, at NYU yeah, and, you know, she's working 90, brutal. yeah, she's working yeah. 90 hours a week. The idea of her husband just sitting around doing nothing for a year while she's busting her butt wasn't uh, uh, a real appealing uh, setup for her. But also, you know, I had friends who, you know, were growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, who, you know, some of them had factory jobs. Some of them had, you know, more blue collar jobs. Like the idea of just not working for a year was embarrassing. Um, to be able to say, hey, I can afford to not work for a year because they're paying me to do nothing. Um, you know, my family, um, you know, my wife's family, hardworking. I mean, uh, her dad worked for the same company for 35 years. And, um, you know, my parents, uh, divorced at an early age, both worked their butts off. Like this idea of just being like, hey, look at me. I'm going to go jet set around the world because I can while the rest of you are, you know, uh, uh, working nonstop every day. Uh, that was some pressure that I put on myself and, and whether they put it on me or not, I felt it. Um, and it was hard to, to, to do what I thought was right for me, which was to take a break and to go do some things and enjoy life. Uh, I had this kind of internal pressure to just get back to work. And, and ironically, um, I ended up taking a job at another small hedge fund a few months later. Um, you know, don't get me wrong. We did, I did travel a little bit, you know, a couple of trips here and there for a few months, but, um, I ended up going back to work, I think three months later. And uh, ultimately, 2011 was not a great year for the markets. And I think I ended up getting paid dollar for dollar the exact same amount in 2011 by going back to work that I would have had I not worked at all. Like the, the non-compete wow. the, the non that I basically violated by going back to work was worth exactly the same amount as I made by going back to work. So, you know, on the one hand, kind of worked for no reason for nine months. Um, on the other hand, again, you know, I met really good people in that in that job that I took and, and had some great experience. So it wasn't a total loss, but I think it's the kind of thing that in the moment it didn't bother me. But 10 years later, you know, when else am I going to have an opportunity like that to travel the world? And, you know, in my young uh, 30s, before I had kids, um, to be able to do things that, you know, now are, you know, 20 years away now, right? I've got to get my kids through college and out of the house before I can do something <laughs> like that again. Jeff, we're working, we're all working till we're dead right now. As a, as a mother of teens, I, I, you know, my husband and I share your pain. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. But you, you bring up such an interesting point because this idea of what, you know, of the importance of work or how much of our identities are tied up in work or, you know, just the cultural value as Americans. And I don't mean value always in a positive way that we put on, you know, the the definition we give work is is really interesting, isn't it? Well, I think the culture, you know, even just 12 years ago is very different than now, right? Now there's a much bigger push for work-life balance. There's there's much more um, uh, awareness of experiences over just work. You know, 10, 15 years ago, you wore your job, you know, as uh, as a kind of a, 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 a badge of pride, right? You know, how much you were working and how hard you were working. Um, you know, and I think that's a, a hard cultural thing to get past, like you said. Um, it certainly wasn't about boredom. It wasn't like I couldn't have figured out what to do with a yeah. year. I, I had plenty of hobbies and projects and <laughs> things I could have done. Um, it really was, like I said, a, a form of embarrassment or, or a pride thing of like, you know, you're supposed to work every day. Like, that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, if, if you think about it and you could do it over, do you know what you would have done? Like if somebody came and said to you now, OK, you got that year back. What would be on the list of things to do? Yeah, I definitely would have done a couple of months of backpacking um, just around Asia and Europe. I mean, I've spent a fair amount of time in Europe, but very little, if any, time in Asia. Um, you know, I probably would have done the same thing in South America. But but also even just little things of, you know, I live out in California now with my two kids or in activities and sports. And it's very hard for me to get back to uh, places where my family lives in Colorado and Chicago and Cleveland and Florida. So definitely spending a little more family time would have been nice. Um, and also just, you know, one of the benefits of going to a place like Wash U in St. Louis is nobody stays in St. Louis. They all go everywhere. So I've got friends, you know, all over the, the country and the world. I mean, even just a three day trip or a week trip to go see other people would have been, would have been enjoyable. So, um, definitely would have been traveling. I also think, um, you know, I, I like doing projects. I like, you know, volunteering, but it's always been very difficult to do when you don't have visibility. You know, if you're always like, well, I can't get into this because I don't know what the next two months are going to look like. But if I had just said on day one, hey, I've got 365 days before I'm going back to work, you know, a lot of volunteering, a lot of, you know, maybe learn another language, something like that. Things where I would have said, hey, this is what I'm going to do for this year. So your third trade, and this is one of your best, is taking a 90% pay cut to leave Wall Street, first for fintech and then to start Arca. So you you have this sort of really interesting relationship with Wall Street because you're in and out. And so this is another sort of development. So what was going on in your life at this moment that led you to this trade? Sure. Yeah, I did have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with it, right? You know, in, in you know, both in the sense that it was like so uh, gripping to get there, right? This 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 grasp it had on me to be part of this, um, and and the cachet that that came with you know saying you worked on Wall Street, but also don't forget I started my career you know six weeks before nine eleven, um, and a huge recession, so it wasn't exactly a great start to my career. And then you know fought my way back, and then the financial crisis happens. Um, so again, it was a little bit of a love hate relationship, and I think. Um, you know, after Citadel and after working a couple smaller hedge funds where I loved the work that I was doing. Um, but it got to a point in 2013, 2014, where I felt like the skills that I had developed um, no longer mattered as much in markets. Um, you know, we were we went from 
you know, I loved pouring through balance sheets and income statements and finding the nuance and listening to earnings calls and trying to figure out cap structure trades and, and event trades and all these things that, that was what my skill set was. And then we got to 2013, 2014, and it was basically just, you know, what's the Fed going to say next? And it really became boring. It was a very, um, I remember going through an investment committee one time on an investment and, and the answer came out was like, well, who cares? It's just a matter of what the Fed says tomorrow anyway. And it was just like, that was so depressing to me. And um, I had an opportunity, actually, uh, a, a gentleman that uh, I worked with at Friedman Billings Ramsey in D.C. for a couple of years. There's uh, that network. There's that network. <laughs> he started a fintech company. Um, and he had a, he and I had stayed close. In fact, he was on you know a couple of different positions throughout Wall Street as well. Sometimes he was he was a salesman at one point who covered me when I was on the buy side. Um, and he had, was talking to me while I was working at these hedge funds about this idea he had. And I was you know he's picking my brain. And I was giving him some information. And then he finally he ultimately decided to leave his company and start this company. And like six to twelve months later, he he asked me. He said, "Would you want to come do this with me?" Um, and, you know, I didn't really, you know, again, this is back in 2013, 2014, um, you know, there wasn't really that many kind of fintech success stories back then where, where that move from Wall Street to fintech made <laughs> as much sense as it does today. You know, now everybody's trying to make that move. But, um, you know, this was still kind of before uh, you had enough of those success stories to, to make it like an obvious trade. Um and I remember talking over with my wife. We had just had our first uh, ch- child, and he was one years old. And, and obviously, my wife is now, you know, she's she was a full-fledged doctor now making money for the first time in her career after a 10-year journey of either paying an insane amount of money for school or making nothing as a resident. And financially, it was like, okay, you know, do we really want to do this? Do I want to leave a cushy hedge fund job where I'm making good money and I've been doing this for a long time and, and know how to make money? Or do I want to take a chance and learn something new? Um, and ultimately, the, the the person who had started the company, I trusted him a lot and, and we'd been friends for a long time. And um, it was hard. I mean, I remember, you know, having the discussion with my wife over and over again, like back and forth, like, well, you know, do I care about just the next 10 years of just being an easy life, making our money, or do I want to take a chance and try to build something? And um, in the back of my mind, I was like, well, you know, what's the worst that could happen if it's, you know, it's either it's, it's going to be boom or bust, right? Either this is a billion dollar company and, you know, it's the great thing in the world or it's a flop and I'll be back, on, you know, uh, uh, back on Wall Street in, in a year or two anyway. Uh, and ultimately, I was there for five years, so it was neither. It wasn't. It wasn't a. It wasn't a huge success. Um, um, it was. It was successful enough to still be in business, but it wasn't a. You know, it's not a household name that you would have heard of. It's not a huge success. But I was there for five years, and it was during that time I think that one. I kind of gave up this just obsession with money. You know, I think part of the Wall Street uh, culture was just, you know, you have to make more than the guy next to you. You have to just keep working till you get that huge bonus and get that second house and do all these things. Um, and taking the huge pay cut to go work for an uncertain startup kind of dislodged that obsession with money um, and, and gave me more of sort of a passion for just doing creative things and, 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 and doing interesting things. Um, but two was, like I said earlier, this myopic kind of debt and equity investing, you, you really start to just talk to the same people all the time. You go to the same bars and restaurants all the time. You're focused on the same factors all the time. And and even though I was, you know, well versed in finance and economics, having, you know, had a twelve plus year career at the time, I, you know, had taken the CFA and, and passed all three tests and all that stuff, like 
the real world experience of finance I was really kind of missing. Um, and once mm. I went over to this fintech company, it was like, okay, now I'm talking to, you know, small financial advisors in Minnesota and I'm talking to, uh, uh, you know, uh, a small IRRIAs and talking to, you know, research firms and just sort of a little bit of a wider, um, net, I guess, in terms of just understanding what the whole financial ecosystem was. Um, and more importantly, it was the first time I'd ever worked with developers. You know, we had 10 full stack developers working on this project and they all had a completely different background and culture and knowledge set and, and kind of understanding where they were coming from, from finance and tech versus where, you know, uh, uh, myself and the other ex Wall Street guys were coming from. Um, it was almost a little bit of the jocks and the nerds kind of uh, uh, dynamic where yeah. it was like we had to learn how to work together, even though we had this kind of natural culture clash uh, in terms of them being these you know brilliant artists and us being these egotistical, you know, money obsessed people and, and figuring out how to work together with them and build a company was was a really good experience for me um, and also allowed me to move out of New York because a couple of years into it, um, I was still working in New York, working for this company. And, um, I remember my wife and I very just, uh, for years we were kind of hinting at like, do we want to stay at New York forever? We just had our first, you know, child. Do we want to raise children here? Neither of us were from New York. It's not like we had any ties there. It was just because of work that we were there. Um, and I remember very vividly, I was, one day I was like sprinting from Penn Station to, to, uh, um, uh, to Times Square. Um, like like really aggressively walking fast, almost knocking people over. And I remember being like, what am I, I don't even have anywhere to be. Like, why am I moving this fast? And it, it kind of <laughs> dawned on me that New York was just, became so entrenched in me um, for no real reason. You know, I wasn't in this kind of hustle and bustle Wall Street life anymore. And yet I'm still operating like everything has to be done immediately or it's not going to get done. And we, my wife and I were like, well, where would we go? And we started talking about different places that we might want to live. And, and ultimately, we just moved out to Los Angeles, again, kind of on a whim. We had no family out here. It was just, you know, we'd always both liked California and wanted something new. Um, and I'd moved out here. And ultimately, a few years later was when I started Arca and, and got full time into blockchain. But it, but it came from this fintech experience because I was talking to developers who were mining for Bitcoin uh, and Ethereum, and we're understanding open source code and using GitHub every day. And then when I moved to LA, it's like every single person I, I met out here was in crypto or blockchain in some capacity. Um, you know, the difference is, you know, New York, everybody has one job and works 100 hours a week. In LA, nobody has a real job. They all, you know, have 17 different projects they're working on. And, you know, one... Which is interesting. It's just such an interesting cult difference in culture. Yeah, for sure. It was a very different uh, uh, culture for us. Uh, my wife as well, right? I mean, she went from working in the hospital in New York where it was just every second, every minute to, you know, moving out here where it's like, yeah, you know, I'm a doctor, but I also play golf and go sailing and everybody has like different uh, uh, hobbies because there's so much to do out here. Um, so anyway, I mean, just just that one little decision of being willing to kind of rip the Band-Aid off and, and leave Wall Street on my own to start and, and work in this fintech project led to a light, you know, a, a move to Los Angeles, a, a career change. I mean, all these different things stemmed from that. And it was all again, from being willing to just take a chance on myself and not be just tied down to this persona that I had built through work. Yeah, I like the way you say that one little decision, because it's a massive, it's a massive decision. It's interesting. And I want to talk about both your, you know, as this sort of 
couple, your ability to take risk is amazing. But um, when you say you were you you dislodged that obsession with money, it's hard to sort of understate what a big change that is because you're finally at the point where she's making decent money, you're making decent money. I mean, that can set you up for life if you combine your two salaries, especially as you start a family. You know, you know, you got college looming out there. I mean, I could see why you went back and forth about it. That had to feel like an incredibly risky decision to make to give that up. Yeah, it definitely was. Um, and not even just money, but also just the, um, the, the inner relationship dynamics of my wife and I, you know, for, for, you know, over a decade, I was the one who made the money. She was the one who was working towards something and, you know, had debts and, you know, all of a sudden that dynamic flipped where now she's making the good money and I'm the one who's basically the liability. And, um, you know, it, it, that was a, a big shift in, in, in kind of our relationship as well. Um, not for better or worse, but just, just, just different, right? It was just a different dynamic. Was it dynamic. weird? Uh, not in like a power dynamic or in a, you know, sex dynamic or anything of a male, female or anything, but it was weird in the sense that like part of my identity was being the guy who brought home good money and her identity was never being the breadwinner. Um, so there was definitely, it was definitely weird. Um, and it was, uh, you know, I think change in general is usually good. Um, even if you don't, doesn't feel like in the time, but just, you know, being able to be on both sides of that, um, definitely made, uh, our relationship better in terms of understanding each other. Uh, but it's definitely weird. Yeah. I think what you said about identity is really important though, right? Because I think that we don't realize how much some things are getting baked into our identity. You know, you think of yourself and it doesn't really feel that different as you go. But over the years, there's definitely things that are informing that. And then when suddenly you p- make a pivot like that, you're kind of left sort of figuring out really who you are without some of those trappings, right? And so some people that's a big that's a big transition. Yeah, it is. And 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 it's, you know, it's not obviously just me. I mean, everyone goes through that, right? When you've done something for as long as you do it, eventually it just becomes part of who you are and it's it's hard to see yourself doing something else. And it's it's I'm I'm not 100% sure which is right or which is wrong. I mean, I, I know people who've worked in the same place for 20 years and they love it, and I know people who take a new job every 2 years. Um but there's no question that the longer you do the same thing, the more it kind of just becomes who you are. Um, and, and being able to see past that or see another world is, is hard, but, but, you know, can be often rewarding. And, and for me, certainly it was. Did you learn about skills that you had that you didn't realize? Because you're, so you're, you're transitioning from the money front transitioning from the breadwinner transitioning from being in the dynamic of the hedge fund world which you'd always known you've got to work with these as you said the jocks and the nerds but work with these people who have all this expertise that you don't i imagine it must have been a pretty big learning curve on the tech front what skills did you have and maybe what weaknesses did you recognize that you didn't realize yeah well one of them that's funny because the thing that popped in my head when you said that was um i didn't know how to take a lunch break um, I had worked for 12 years where I never took a lunch break. It was like, you know, get a sandwich back to your desk and keep trading. And, um, you know, when I worked for, for the, the fintech company, it was like, people just took a lunch break for an hour and sat and talked and went to lunch. I'm like, well, what is this? Like, aren't you worried about getting, they're like, worried about getting back to the desk for what? It's not like the, you know, it wasn't related to the market. It wasn't like you had this, um, you know, thing to get back to. It took me, it took me a long time. It took me a couple of years to actually figure out how to eat lunch and leave my computer for an hour during the middle of the day. Um, but also the, the big thing was, you know, I'd mentioned that my son was now one years old when I made this move. Um, you know, every single person in my life on Wall Street, you know, they took the train at 5 a.m. and they got home at 7 or 8 p.m. I mean, they never see their kids Monday through Friday. Um, 
I got to see my son every day. You know, I didn't go into work. I would get up early before he would wake up and I would do some work at from home. Then I would spend an hour, hour and a half with him, um, you know, before uh, the nanny came or before he went to school when he got older. Um, and then I'd go, I, you know, I'd leave work at four or five o'clock and go home and be with him for a couple hours and then maybe go log on at night and do some more work later. Um, and again, that was a very different lifestyle than the, you know, 6 a.m. to 7 p.m. job that I had for, you know, the first 12 years of my career. And, and, and what's funny is, you know, my son is now 10. I have a daughter who's almost six. I still have that same, uh, schedule now, even though I'm, I'm back running money. Uh, you know, at, at Arco, we have multiple different investment products, including hedge funds. <clears throat> so in some ways, my life now is back to what it used to be. But, because blockchain is 24-7, because crypto is 24-7, there's no one hour that's more important than any other hour. It's not like the, you know, the stock market that's open, you know, for a set number of hours every day. So I still have that exact same schedule today. Yeah. Yeah. And some of that is just, it's just habit, right? I mean, like we found through the pandemic, there are other ways to do things, but it's just that, well, that's the way Wall Street operated. And a lot of it was political and FaceTime and whatever, you know, it was um, just the way things had been done. It didn't mean it was the way things should be done or could be done. Yeah, for sure. And then I think from a work standpoint too, I mean, it, it's a, the, the, the creative side, um, was something that I think I always had in me that was sort of, um, you know, muffled when I was on Wall Street because Wall Street's such a machine. It's like, you know, you do this, then you do this, and you do this. Your presentation has to look exactly like this. Your spreadsheets have to look exactly like this. And then you go to, you know, a smaller firm and it's like, yeah, you know, start from scratch, build it however you want. And the ability to do that, um, you know, really started writing a lot more, um, which I've always enjoyed doing, but never really had an outlet to do it. And, and now, um, you know, for anybody who may or may not know me, I mean, I, I've been writing a crypto blog now for five years called That's Our Two Satoshis. I do it every single week. And it's not even a chore. It's just like part of who I am is just writing. Um, you know, and I, and I, you know, those are the kind of skills that sometimes get hidden when mm -hmm. you're kind of working for a big machine and when you have a little bit more of a, um, free floating job or company, you know, you try things and they may or may not work. And, you know, you kind of start to tap in a little bit more to your skill sets. Yeah. Or find that you have them and they were just not nurtured, you know? Exactly. Um, and especially the way the world is moving. I mean, I think that creativity or at least the ability to sit at intersections is so important. I mean, for me, some of the most successful people I ever talked to have that ability, but, you know, it's only because they kind of wrenched it out of the system or found a way to get it. Um, the system or the organizations tended to sort of stifle that, which is kind of interesting. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Do you and your wife think of yourselves as risk takers or did you at any point when you were making these humongous decisions? I, I definitely consider myself a risk taker. My wife is yeah. the exact opposite. Very risk averse. <laughs> Um, her family is very risk averse. My family is very risk averse. I'm, I'm sort of the, uh, uh, the lone risk taker in, in, of the people that we know. Um, but definitely these decisions were certainly easier for me, um, than they were for her. Um, and yet she gets there. Yeah, she gets there. But I also think it's, it's, you know, um, it's, it's always 
interesting when you're making decisions on behalf of more than one person, right? When you're making a decision on your own, certainly you can make the right or wrong decision, but at least you have only yourself to account for. But when you're doing it on behalf of a spouse or kids or, you know, it's, it's a lot more impactful. So, you know, I think, um, you know, my, 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 my attitude about it is no matter what you do, you'll make the best out of it, even if it turns out to be not the best decision. So, um, you know, I, I like to take those risks and make those changes and, and see what you can do with it. I know some people, the, the idea of it just makes them cringe. And, and I think my wife is one of those people, but we've, we've been able to figure out how to do it together. Yeah, I, we, we have a no regrets policy, right? At the end of the day, like if you're going to be wondering or have regrets, then at least if you try, you have to have, you seem to be quite willing to face failure as well. Because to make big decisions like that, you've got to be willing to understand that they may not work out. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think part being a baseball player, you know, all my childhood and through college, I think that helped as well. I mean, baseball is a game of failure. You know, the, the, the best hitters in the world only get on base three out of every 10 times. Um, you know, so I think that's a game of failure. It sort of teaches you that failure is okay and how to bounce back. Um, you know, I've always had, I, I think I've, I've always had that attitude, um, whether, you know, it's like a baseball closer who blows a save and still has to go out there the next day and do it, or the cornerback in football who gets burned for a touchdown and still has to go right back out there and do it again. Um, you know, I feel like that when I write, you know, I write every single week. Some of the things I write, I know are terrible, but it's like, I'm not going to agonize over them and, you know, spend 17 hours fixing it. It's like, all right, well, whatever, I'll spit it out and I'll come back next week and write a better one. Um, so I think, you know, that's, that, that attitude I, I've had with me my whole life really is, you know, don't worry about failure, do the best you can. And then, you know, you're going to get another shot next time anyway. So let's get to your final trade. And that is one of your worst. And this is interesting because it's kind of, at least on the surface, a departure from some of these more like life-centered ones. And that is owning a 20% position in Trump bonds in 2008 when you thought an asset sale was coming up. Trade work, then it didn't. So why does this one get on the list? I'm interested. So this one really kind of defined... Um, my investing prowess, um, in the sense that I, I, you know, I was a young, hotshot, twenty-year-old trader at Merrill. They gave me a lot of capital. Uh, you know, this is before the financial crisis, where you know it didn't matter how much money you're using, money was infinite at Merrill. Just you know, as long as you could make money, they'll give you as much as you want. I was, I don't know, twenty-six, twenty-seven, twenty-eight years old, managing hundreds of millions of dollars for Merrill. And I remember I took a very large position in Trump bonds. This was uh, back before Donald Trump became who he is today, back when he was just a casino mogul or, or whatever else he had going on. But um, he had three properties in Atlantic City, and there was a, a, a bond issuance that was tied to, do, to those three properties with very tight covenants that if he sold any of those properties, he had to use the proceeds to buy back the bonds. And it was becoming pretty evident that he was trying to sell one of those three properties. So I took a very large position in the bonds. Um, they were, you know, high yield bonds, double, they were single B bonds trading 10, 11, 12%, something like that. And I remember when news finally broke that he was looking to sell one of the three properties, the bonds shot up like five or six points. And it was like my first big win. I'd made a couple million dollars on one trade. People are high fiving me. Um, and then I didn't sell enough of them. And I remember not sleeping very well that night or the next night or whatever it was. And then a couple, that day or the next day came out the headline that the asset sale wasn't going to happen and the bonds got crushed <gasps> and I lost a ton of money. Um, so basically in the same week, and again, I don't remember exactly if it was like a day or two days or three days, but in the same week, I had a huge win and a huge loss. And both of them obviously caught the attention of my bosses and the risk managers and everything else. And I remember a very senior trader at the time, uh, shout out to Danny Mena, if he's listening for whatever reason, 
I remember him, he was always a very stoic, very unemotional trader. Um, and he was one of the people that I had learned from. And, and I remember he came over to me and said, it wasn't about whether you were right or wrong. It's about whether you should have been taking that much risk in the first place. And it stuck with me because what he was basically saying was, independent of the outcome, were you too big? Did you think through all the risks that you were going through? And I remember that you know, that week or, or that month, I remember I went back to my spreadsheet days and I started to build a model on, well, how do you actually think about risk reward? What is the right way to size something? And I built this model and I still use it today. I've adapted it over 15 years um, where it's 100% just based on get all of the information that matters for an investment, get the timing, get the correlation, get the upside downside ratio, get the liquidity of it, figure out all these different factors that go into whether something is going to work or not and figure out what is the right size for that position to be based on all of those factors. Um, and ultimately, that was a huge mistake that I made, um, not just because I lost money, but because it put me all of a sudden on everyone at Merrill's radar, right, as a gunslinger. And that wasn't what I was designing to be. You know, I didn't want to be a gunslinger. I wanted to be a guy who just was trusted to make money every year. And the big win followed by the big loss uh, even though the net P&L wasn't actually that big of a deal, the the way I got there, right, the path it took, the huge up and the huge down, definitely you know raised eyebrows in, in, in not a great way at Merrill. And it took me a lot of years to kind of understand that and understand, okay, how do you think about this better, right? It's not just about how much money you can make. It's how much risk are you taking to to get there. And I know there's all kinds of metrics in finance that, that look at risk-adjusted return, but it's a lot it's a lot more than just academic. It's about really understanding, you know, everything that could go wrong. Um, and I, you know, I've dedicated my career to that. I've written articles about it. I've, I've built, uh, uh, uh systems and, and processes around it. Um, you know, even little things like when I talk to my kids, it's like, okay, yeah, like the likelihood of getting a hit by a car is very low, but that one time that you don't look crossing the street is going to be a risk that you're not willing to take. Um, and you know, it's funny cause you, the last segment you're talking about how I'm a risk taker and I am a risk taker. Um, yeah. That's what I'm but, listening to this. It's so interesting cause it seems yeah, at odds, but I, I am a risk taker, but a very calculated risk taker, you know, very, very methodical about what is the risk I'm actually taking and is that worth it? And, and that doesn't mean I won't take a big risk, but I'm definitely focused on the downside more so than the upside when I'm doing that. That's so interesting. So chronologically, this kind of fits a little bit earlier in the trades we talked about, but I'm glad that we did it last because I think it's it's the kind of culmination because you did take these big risks and a lot of them in your personal life, which obviously the stakes are just as high, but you know it's a little bit different. Did you apply, do you think you've always been doing that of kind of applying all the information, plugging all the information you could into those decisions? Or is that really after you had this trade that you became really front of mind that was much more articulated front of mind? I, this one definitely changed how I thought about risk. Um, I think I always, again, I always had the willingness to take risks. I always had a, a, a higher risk tolerance, but never in a methodical way until this event traded these Trump bonds where I started to really calculate, um, you know, what if I'm wrong and is it okay? And I think a, a part of it is, you know, you take take like a move from New York to LA for, for, for example, right? I mean, that's a big move. That's a big decision. Um, even though I can paint all these pictures of like what the upside is, the, the cost of living is lower, the weather is better, the lifestyle is better. But like, you know, there's also the, what is the downside? And, and in going through that, especially with my wife, it's like, what is the downside? It's not that big of a deal. If we don't like it, we can always move back. Um, you know, and, 
things like that. Like I always think about what is that downside? And most of what I've realized is that a lot of the things that we fear in life or a lot of the things that we worry about um, in terms of downside oftentimes isn't that big of a deal. And I think that's probably the biggest attitude for me is it's not that I'm willing to take less risks. It's more a lot of times the downside risk that we fear and that we worry about so much really isn't that big of a deal. And I, I think I've lived my life that way of not kind of fretting over small things um, and being able to, to quantify exactly what those risks are. So is that understanding risk or is that understanding fear, right? Because if they're not that big of a deal, what are we afraid of? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think it's about, I think probably more than anything, it's about articulating, right? You get things that, you know, it's about being able to act, act to, uh, 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 accurately articulate what it is that you're worried about, right? For an investment, it's being able to accurately articulate exactly what the downside of the investment is or what could go wrong or what is the probability of this, you know, black swan event. Um, and, and with life stuff, it's the same thing. It's like articulate, like, okay, what are we actually worried about? What, you know, are we worried about failure? Are we worried about hating where we are? You know, and, and, and trying to spell it out helps you evaluate it better. And I think um, that's an attitude that has stuck with me really since that Trump trade, um, you know, uh, is not just being so myopic on this upside scenario and just, you know, shooting the moon with this huge idea and instead kind of saying, okay, let's, let's, you know, what could go right? What could go wrong? I mean, honestly, given going back to that, just that specific trade, I mean, I, you know, I owned, I think I owned 30, 35 million bonds at the time. I probably, if I could do it again, I would have owned like 3 million um, just because, it, you know, clearly I misread the volatility. Clearly I misread the binary options. And, and it's like, you know, that's the kind of big shift um, that has shaped a lot of what I've done throughout my career and my personal life is, is you know, only taking those big swings when you really clearly understand the upside versus the downside. Yeah. Handy to have as an entrepreneur because that, that sort of thinking sometimes it is all about just, you know, shoot for the moon, fake it till you make it, especially when you're talking to VC and you're fundraising, you know, nobody wants to, you can get caught up in just trying to emphasize that upside, I think. Yeah, I mean, even even working for some startups, which I have too. Um, you know, even Arkham when we started was a startup. I mean, even little decisions of like, do we want to go down this path in this business idea? Well, if it's going to take eighteen months and a couple million dollars to do, even if it has high upside, maybe that's not a risk worth taking versus this path over here, where you know we'll know in two or three months whether or not it's going to work. Um, right, and it's that that ability to kind of evaluate and think about like, yeah, a path A might be the home run path, but it also could put us out of business. Whereas path B you know, might only be a single, but it might lead us to raising more money and giving us more longevity to do the bigger things. Yeah. Last question. What What would your advice be to either investors or people who are a little earlier on their journey? Yeah, I think I think you touched on it actually more than me, but but um, everyone kind of knows the value of a network, but being willing to maintain that network and, and talk to people is really important. Um, I used to just read a lot and read a lot and not talk to people. And I realized um, how quickly, um, I would be dismissive of other people's ideas because I didn't like read it in a book. And then over later in my career, I was like, actually, I want to hear the person who disagrees with me. I want to hear the person who has a completely opposite viewpoint of me and, 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 and hear them out and learn from that. And, and it takes effort to do that. It takes effort to just pick up the phone and call someone or send an email or a text to just stay in touch. And, you know, I'd say most of my best investments and most of my best decisions in some way, shape or form came from talking to people or just reaching out and, and, and hearing the other side of things. Um, so that would be my advice is 
be willing to take chances on yourself, be willing to do things, but but do it with the backdrop of knowledge from other people and, and using the people in your life um, who have done things or haven't done things to help guide and shape your decisions. Well, Jeff, I'm so glad that you took the time to talk to us today. This was so much fun and a lot of fantastic wisdom in there. Thank you for sharing your story. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. That's a wrap on this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four. Hey, everyone. Thanks for watching. If you like this show, you're going to love Real Vision Essential. At Real Vision, we talk to the most successful investors in the world and deliver videos that make finance interesting. It's all about helping you become a better, more confident investor. Now, we could dress that up in fancy marketing buzzwords, but it's really that simple. Oh, and right now, you can join Essential for $99 for a full year instead of the usual $239. Visit realvision.com forward slash Essential99 to join the Real Vision community. That's realvision.com forward slash Essential99.